Daniel chapter 9, we start with Daniel chapter 9 in the first verse, it'll, Daniel will say that it was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, um, the son of Ahasuerus who became the king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was studying the writings of the prophets. Some of you may have, have Google searched it or, or are aware that there's a lot of argument out there as to whether or not this is even real because there's very little record of Darius at all. Recently, there's been some ancient manuscripts that have come up from this time period that start talking about this guy named Darius. And so I love it when the world doubts the authority of scriptures and then all of a sudden God shines a light on it. You're like, oh, look at that. He was right all the time. Uh, so Daniel says he's studying Jeremiah the prophet. And when he's studying Jeremiah the prophet for is a specific reason. He's trying to figure out what's going on in the people of God. I want to dive in at verse 20, take us through verses 20 through 27, and, and talk a little bit about what's going on. This is some of the most difficult prophetic scripture to understand and study. There is a plethora of information out there that I think is strange. There's a, you have to be aware that not every person that can build a website actually is right. So my goal in this is that we study the text from a historical point of view with the question, how would Israel, how would Daniel, the listener, have heard this? And then we move forward to the question of how can we apply it? Does that seem fair? Okay. So let's pick up in verse 20. I went on praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my peoples. This is what Daniel was doing as he's coming across Jeremiah's text. Jeremiah says the captivity is going to be 70 years. Daniel realizes they're in this 70-year window. He doesn't know when it's going to end. I believe he was interceding for the shortest possible conclusion, which is that the Lord would have begun that 70 years at the earliest point. I think that's what he's interceding for. I was pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given, and I'm here to tell you what it was. For God loves you very much. Now listen so you can understand the meaning of your vision. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to put down rebellion, to bring an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and the war and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. He will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Then at the climax of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the end that has been decreed is poured out upon this defiler. Now you know why I've been knee-deep in commentaries for four weeks. The first thing I want us to understand is that Daniel, what Daniel's trying to do when, this, when the angel Gabriel comes to him, he's attempting to interpret Jeremiah's prophetic timeline because he wants to know when the captivity's gonna end. And I think it's vital for us to understand on two fronts. The first one I would say that we must hold as a truth. 
the discerning of times when it comes to prophetic words are difficult. How many have read a book or two that told you when the earth was supposed to have ended? They're all built out of an effort to discern timelines. And I would just say in our personal lives, when we're hearing prophetic words, whether it's a, a prophetic person that, that like, like Dr. Jay LaRue, who will be with us in September, is one, one of the prophets of the house that we bring in. He's got an incredible gift. But the discerning of times and seasons is difficult. But what I love is this second thing we see Daniel doing. He's searching for answers in the scriptures. That we have to hold these two tensions. One is, man, times are tough to hit but the scriptures hold answers and I'm gonna study and know the scriptures so I can help learn what prophecy means. That's a good root for us to hold on to, a good baseline. What we see Daniel doing, I wanna, I wanna highlight maybe our lens or our perspective for this study. I'm not looking at this so much from what's it apply to me, I'm looking at it from the lens of how did Daniel hear it? What did Daniel see? We see him fasting and praying and deeply repenting for his nation. So the question would be why? I think Daniel was actually concerned at the possibility that God might extend the captivity longer. Here's why I think that. Leviticus 26 verse 18, this is the Lord saying to Israel prior, if after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. What God says to Israel early in their journey is I need you to understand when I speak something to you, when I declare something over you and you disobey me, it does draw difficulty into your life. And I think Daniel knew this and was concerned that there was gonna be an extension because the people of God in general still weren't listening to the Lord. So he moves into a place of intercession, of fasting. If that's not a picture of how we should live in our day and our time, I don't know what is. What we have to be able to do is look around us and see the world at large that is in mired in sin, whether we see believers that are living incredibly complacent lives, it should motivate in us a passion to intercede, to step into that place of intercession where we're gonna cry out for them because we want the mercy of God to invade their life. That is Daniel's model. It has to be ours. No more of this political stuff where we're on Facebook fighting with politics, stop. Start to pray for our nation. Pray for the cities you live in. Intercede for them. Our political agenda is not going to change America. Our prayers will. Wow, that was not in the first set of notes. Sorry. So we see Gabriel, Gabriel's word was for two reasons. It was to both comfort and correct Daniel. He says, I'm here to tell you what you saw, for God loves you very much. And I love that. That God's love for Daniel causes him to step. Daniel is distressed. He's in anguish. I think sometimes we come into prayer with the expectation of, I gotta have everything right because God's already predisposed to being a little upset at me, a little irritated with me. I would love to say this. Your prayers actually invite the character of your king into your journey. When we set up shop to begin to pray, what we're inviting is the kindness of heaven, the character of God into our life. The more you pray, the more you will become like him because it's where he releases his character into your life. God will shape you in your prayer time. We don't pray to be good believers. We don't pray because it's what we're supposed to do. We spend time face to face with the king so the radiation of heaven can infuse us and change us. If you see habits in your life, you see difficulties in your life, you see sin patterns that are driving you crazy, go sit with the Lord instead of assuming that he's going to reject you and invite his kindness to lead you into life change. Yeah. 
We have to put away shame. Shame never leads me to health. We have a father who knows all things, sees all things, and I often believe waits for us to humble ourselves enough to say, I need you. Well, I'm really going slow in this gathering. So we see in this that the decree was 70 sets of seven for a purpose. So Gabriel steps in. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for you and for your people. There are six things that are declared that these 70 sets of seven will accomplish. The first thing I want to say is everybody always jumps to, well, it's, it's years. Okay, so how do we know that? It doesn't actually say years. What it says is 70 sets of seven for a purpose. Most Jews would understand the Hebrew for weeks because of the observance of the Feast of Weeks. So the Hebrew word is shavuot. However, the word that appears here in the Hebrew is shavoim, which means sevens. So what it, mean, what it refers to is a seven of anything. So in order to discern what is it about, we have to consider the context. What has already been established in this passage? 70 years. Daniel was thinking about years. So the angel Gabriel comes and does a play on words and says, I know you think that 70 is gonna happen and it's all gonna be over. What did Daniel think was coming? I think Daniel believed all these prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah and assumed the 70 years of captivity in Israel was going to be, the, and the end of it, the Messiah was gonna come, and Gabriel comes and says, oh buddy, it's actually 70 sets of seven. The six things that it was to accomplish are incredibly important. The first thing I want us to understand is it's not written to the Gentile world. This prophecy is specifically to Israel. The phrasing that Gabriel uses is your people, your holy city, and the anointed one. Your people, Israelites. What is the holy city of Israel? Jerusalem. Every, every Israelite would say, Jerusalem's my holy city. So it's to the people of Israel, it's about Jerusalem, and it deals with the anointed one. Now, the New Living Translation, which is what I teach out of, 1998 Tyndale version, in case you wonder, I love it, it's great for reading. It's terrible for this moment. Because that, that anointed one phrase is not right. The word is Mashiach, which means Messiah. But there's a word that's missing in the New Living. And it says, the Messiah, the Prince. It's a very specific qualifier pointing to a very specific person. So Daniel would have heard this and said, understood that Gabriel was saying, what's coming is the age of Messiah. Look at the things that were gonna be accomplished. The first one was to put down rebellion. The word means to restrain completely. The second one is to make an end of sins. This word means to seal up or to shut up in prison. It means to securely keep something. Got to find my notes, sorry. Still going. The third purpose is to make an atonement for guilt. It is a reconciliation. The fourth purpose, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, this word everlasting here, poor translation. It should be translated an age of righteousness. Fifth thing, to confirm the prophetic vision. It literally means to complete prophetic vision. And then the last thing, to anoint a most holy place. 
So if you consider those six movements, how many with me would say, I see Jesus? Because if you look at what Jesus did, it's really clear. Jesus comes in, puts down rebellion. What do you mean he puts down rebellion? It means to restrain from, what Jesus did on the cross that we know hindsight looking back, is he made it possible for the sin nature that was within us, that tendency to rebel, to actually be trumped. I want to tell you this right now. Right now, within you, you have the power, because of Jesus, to say no to sin. You have the authority to put down rebellion. That means every place in you that wants to stand up and oppose God, you have the supernatural authority to step on it. I would actually say one of the fundamental things we do to extend the kingdom is to step on rebellion. What kind of rebellion? All. Did you know that rebellion, biblically, is equal to the sin of witchcraft? So every time I let myself partner with rebellion at any level, whether it's in my home, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's on traffic, doesn't matter. I'm actually extending the demonic. I'm giving it authority in a moment. And every time, conversely, that I step on rebellion, And I, because of the grace of God, say, I will not rebel, will not allow rebellion in me, I won't allow a rebellious thought in my mind. Every time I do that, I'm extending righteousness. I'm partnering with the Lord. Make sense? How many have never looked at rebellion quite that clearly? I am making a choice when I partner with rebellion to side with the enemy. I am making a choice when I put down rebellion to side with Jesus. The second thing that Jesus does is make an end of sins. And the third thing, atone for guilt. What I see in this, it's concerning for me. I see a picture of Jesus, I think we all see that. But what would they have comprehended? What would Daniel have seen? Daniel couldn't have had a chance of fathoming what this was really gonna look like. And I think it brings up a point that's worth highlighting. That we rarely understand how the Lord is gonna accomplish what he says. And we need to be careful and reverent when we hear the voice of God. Even when we read the scriptures, before we jump headlong into, I know what it means, let's go. I would challenge us to push pause. I would actually challenge us to push stop. Turn to the Lord and say, I heard what you said, but I don't know what you want to do. What is my next step in this process? Instead of what I would call spiritual arrogance, Stupidity and arrogance kind of live in the same world, which is I heard God, I know what it means. I don't know if you're like me, but a tremendous amount of my mistakes spiritually have been made because I heard God correctly, had no idea how to apply it. And I took off assuming that I knew how to apply it. So I would caution us to be a people that have great reverence for the prophetic, but turn to the Lord, invite his voice, and study the scriptures to learn how to execute it. Gabriel says, now listen and understand. There's an indication here, the way we should hear this, really what it means is, Gabriel says to Daniel, don't miss this point. Do not miss this point. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the moment the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. So seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven begin at the moment. It's not a general statement. This is not something just thrown out there. We're talking about a very finite, detailed moment in time. 
that well, I mentioned it before, the anointed one, Mishiach Nagid, which really says Messiah the Prince. So it points to a specific figure. So what Gabriel's actually doing for Daniel and for the people of Israel is giving them a roadmap to see the coming Messiah. He's spelling out in years for the people of Israel when the Messiah would be on the scene. The timeline is 69 sets of seven or 483 years from the moment the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem. So the question is, when, will the, when was the moment the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem? That's gonna become incredibly important in understanding this. There's a historical place we can look. Question is, can we, can we see specific time, a specific time in history when Jerusalem was rebuilt after the word was given? There are four possibilities if you study the scriptures. I want you to consider an idea. In ancient times, what separated a city from a township? I heard it, walls. Why? Defense. So a city became a city when it was fortified and and it could defend itself. That's an important idea to hold on to when we're trying to discern what this prophetic word means because there's four decrees. The first one is a decree of Cyrus, which is issued somewhere between 538 and 536 BC, which concerned the rebuilding of the temple. There's a decree of Darius, issued in the year 521 BC, which reaffirms Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple. There's a decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra, issued in 458 BC, which contained permission to proceed with the temple. And then there's a decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, which is issued in 444, 446 to 444 BC, and that decree specifically concerns the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. I think for that reason, if you look at it, this prophetic command that was given that Gabriel's talking about is the one that was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah somewhere between 446 and 444 BC. So if we're going to try to time and date this, I'm setting us up for something. And it's not just academic stupidity. When God, who is Hebrew, declares a year, is it going to be a Hebrew year or a Gregorian year? Right, because it's his culture. The Jewish calendar is 360 days, 360 day years. Gregorian calendar is 365. If you take and multiply the 483 years, which is the seven sets of seven plus the 62 sets of seven, we have 69 sets of seven multiplied by, it's 483, right? I got your calculators, check the math. You come to 173,880 days. If you divide that by 365 days because of how Gregorian history will calculate time, you end up with 476.38 years. 483 years Jewish equals 476.38 years Gregorian. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Artaxerxes' decree in 446 or 444, why the two-year gap? It's like carbon dating. They can kind of get a timeline. A lot of people will tell you it was the year in Nisan, 445 BC. I, th I think that that's possible. Not sure that that's exactly when it was. I would say this. If you can get me within two years, I'm golden. I think we're in the right idea. His decree in this timeline, if you subtract 476.38 years, it places the mark in the pocket of time when the Messiah will be on the scene at somewhere between AD 30 and AD 33. And then Gabriel goes on and says, after this period, 
of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. The anointed one will be killed is a traceable time pocket for us. Now we believe the Messiah is Jesus. Most Jews don't. Can we connect this to Jesus? How many understand that Jesus was killed somewhere between AD 30 and AD 33? Appearing to have accomplished nothing is an important idea because it would appear that what the Jewish people wanted the Messiah to come and do didn't happen when the Messiah actually came. This is what Gabriel is telling them ahead of time. Did Israel see Jesus' crucifixion as an evidence of the Messiah? The answer is no. They scoffed at it. Scripture says very clearly he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. Gabriel will go on and say, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood, war and its miseries are decreed from that time on, and he goes on. This is where many people begin to provide prophetic interpretation that turn this into the future. Many people believe this speaks about a time coming of future war, where there's going to be a seven-year period. The argument is that the subdivision, 762 and 1, leaves space for the last seven to be fulfilled in the end days of the earth. I have some arguments against this point of view. Number one, according to the prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel, there's a temple required for this to be fulfilled. How many are aware there is no temple standing right now? Secondly, there was an event that would happen in the near future from the Messiah being on the earth. Jesus will speak to this time period in Matthew 24. We do not have time to break down Matthew 24 today. His interpretation of events include a phrase to his disciples. They ask him. So they're walking past the temple and they, they're pointing out the temple to him. They're saying, look at all these rad buildings. I mean, that's, it's kind of funny to me that they're taking Jesus on a tour of Jerusalem. Like, really? But he says to them, not one stone will be left upon another. And then he moves in to talk about the second coming. Later on the Mount of Olives in the afternoon, they come to him privately, it says, and, and he, they ask him, hey, Jesus, when will this happen and when will you return? And he answers two separate questions. In his answer, which we don't have time to deal with, and I want to so bad, but I'm already 10 minutes late. He says to them, all these things will happen before this generation dies. So many people have said, well, that word generation, it might mean 2,000 years. Nowhere in scripture prior to this does that word generation mean anything other than 30 to 40 years. Jewish people believe that there was three generations allocated within a hundred year pocket. So we see a temple destruction that has to be connected to the timeline that Jesus talks about because Jesus quotes Daniel in Matthew 24 and says, this is when you'll see it. We're so late, I don't have time. Sorry, we gotta stand. <laughs> 